let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with us to John chapter 13, verse 36. We'll be reading through 1412 in your pew Bible. It's pages 900 to 901. That'll and you're you. following Jesus' Bible, 1158 to 59. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account <clears throat> of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones, first grade and under, who'd like to go back for children's worship and nursery, they can line up with Miss Brittany and our volunteers. All right. Wonderful. Well, if you haven't been with us for the last five weeks, let me orient you to the section of John's gospel um, that we've been reading. John chapters 13 through 17 are all one long narrative. It's one story of Jesus sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, and he knows that this is the last meal that he's ever going to share with them before his death. He's trying to prepare them for life without him physically present. And by the time we get to today's portion of the text, the tensions in the room are getting pretty high. And just in case the tension wasn't high enough, Let's see where we ended last week, what he says to Peter, verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. If the disciples were concerned already, they are now because Jesus has just declared their de facto leader to soon be a turncoat. 
As chapter 14 goes on, what we're going to hear from the disciples is more and more questions. Their concern is beginning to turn to outright fear. It's starting to spread among them. But as they ask their questions consistently throughout these chapters, how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to their emotions? How does he respond to their questions, their concerns, their fears? Well, right after he prophesies Peter's betrayal, what is the next thing that he says? Look again at verse 38, because these chapters, uh, the, the breaks, this is introduced by later translators and editors, right? Uh, this wasn't in the original conversation. So what does Jesus say in verse 38? Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. He knows he's got to say that after the bomb that he's just dropped on these guys. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus has just made a very challenging statement about Peter. He's going to deny him three times before the sun comes up. But lest all hope be lost, he follows that statement up with a word of comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus, again, is trying to prepare them. Pretty soon, within 24 hours, things are going to get very grim. But Jesus doesn't want them to lose hope. Hopelessness is a frightening and dangerous place to find oneself in. I've been there before. Some of you have been there before. And Jesus is trying to prepare them for the hopelessness that they may feel in the hours and days ahead. What is hopelessness? Hopelessness happens when you can't see past the problem in your face. A problem in your life is so big, so present, so real, so overwhelming that that problem begins to define reality for you. This problem in your life looms so large that you start to have this sinking feeling that this thing's never going to go away. This, I guess this is just how life is now, and this problem is never going to change. And if you live with hopelessness long enough, you can begin to wonder if this is life now. What's the point? If this problem isn't going to go away, if nothing I can do will change it, then is life even worth dealing with? Hopelessness can lead to some very dark places. I've been there. Some of you have been there. And if you feel hopeless today, I'm under no illusions that you can walk into this place and feel hopeless. I personally want you to know you're not alone. If you feel hopeless, I'm here. You can talk to me. It's not just my job. It's, I love to do it. That's why I do what I do. There are other people here that you may trust who would love to talk to you. We're concerned about each other in that way, just like Jesus was concerned for his disciples. His concern for his disciples is that their fear would soon become grief and that that grief would turn into hopelessness, that these guys aren't going to be able to deal with Jesus being gone. And you can see 
that stuff stirring up in them, just in the, the, the tone of the questions they ask. Look at verses 5 and 8 in chapter 14. Just listen to their questions and think about what is bubbling up. What are they feeling in their guts as they're asking these questions? Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You hear the grief? You hear the concern? Chapter, uh, verse 8, and this is a different one. We're going to talk about it. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. These two guys are angling for two different things. Is, is, is this becoming real, that something crazy is about to happen, that Jesus is going to be gone? What does Thomas do? We don't know how to get where you're going. Can you tell us? He's trying to find an escape hatch. Jesus, we don't know where you're going. Can you give us a hint, maybe a, a map, <laughs> so that we could join you? Philip is a little less practical and a little more spiritual. Spiritual, Jesus if you could just give us a revelation of the Father, that would be enough for us. He sounds like Moses asking to see God's glory. Show us something bigger and better than this problem, Jesus, and then we can endure it. Something spectacular that will help us through this trial. I do the same thing. We all do the same thing. When hopelessness is creeping in, when we have some massive catastrophe in a relationship, some massive problem in our finances or in our work, when we experience some huge loss in our lives, we respond the same way. Like Thomas, we look for a quick way out, a quick solution, a road map. Or like Philip, we ask God for some sign, some special miracle to carry us through it. But Jesus doesn't provide what they're looking for, at least not in the way they're looking for it. The problem is coming. Whether they like it or not, they can't avoid the problem. Jesus is leaving, and that can't be undone. So he gives them something better. Jesus does give them escape, but it's not from their problem. It's from their hopelessness. And what Jesus offers them, he offers to each one of us as well. Here's the facts. And, and, and most of you know this. You've lived it. Problems are going to happen in your life. It's the kids, I guess, that need to hear this the most. Problems, kids, are going to happen in your life, and there are going to be things you can't do to avoid it. They're just going to come. Problems so massive, there's literally nothing you can do to avoid it. But the problems that crop up in our lives need not define reality so that we fall into hopelessness. Jesus has a solution. In hopeless moments, number one, remember where you're headed, and number two, remember how to get there. If you'll remember where you are headed and how to get there, it's not going to make your problems go away, but it will save you from hopelessness. So first, in hopeless moments, remember where you're headed. So hopelessness happens when a problem dominates our vision, when we can't see past the problem in our face. We need to remember there is something past it. We do have hope beyond that problem. In hopeless moments, we need to remember where we're headed. This problem is not the end, no matter how big it is. If you trust Christ, that's where he starts, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. If you believe Jesus, if you trust Jesus, you do have a hope beyond, behind every problem. You have something better coming. Well, what is it? What is the hope that we have beyond every problem? Chapter 14, again, verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What is the hope that is beyond Jesus' physical absence from them? What is the hope that is beyond every problem that a believer has? The hope that Jesus promises believers is the presence of God. That's the hope. Now, when you read these verses, you may think, well, I thought this is about heaven. Jesus is talking about heaven. He is. Heaven is the hope that we have beyond all our problems. But Jesus doesn't call it heaven, does he? No. What does he call it? Verse 2 again. In my Father's house are many rooms. He doesn't call it heaven. He calls it his Father's house. Why? Because he's teaching his disciples the nature of heaven. In their emotional disarray, he's teaching them what heaven is like. What is it? What is heaven like? What is the hope beyond all of our problems? Our hope is this. One day, we will live with God. That's the point. When Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, he's saying, God has space for you with him. He wants you to live with him. He's got a spot reserved. That is our hope. Beyond all our problems, what do we find? God. Yahweh God of the Bible, the Father, Son, and Spirit. His arms, beyond every problem we have, God stands with his arms wide open to us as individuals. This is one of those texts where we really see God's love for the individual breaking out. Our hope is not mansions or rooms. We'll talk about that in a second. Our hope is not our reward. Our hope is not even heaven. He is our hope. We're going to live with God forever. It is the presence of God that makes it heaven. It's not that God made heaven and it was perfect because it was heaven. It's heaven because he is there. But we're not just going to be in God's presence. There's something more to what Jesus says in that. Yes, we will live with God, but as a result, we will also know God. Look at verses 5 through 7. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know uh, where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus tells his disciples, if you know me, you know the Father. So when we are in the presence of the Father one day, we will know him. When you are in heaven one day, you will have deep, intimate, close relationship with God the Father, as well as God the Son, the one who is already there. If you know the Son, you know the Father, and vice versa. You will know God. He will speak to you. You will have intimate, familial conversation with the creator and judge of all creation. That's what it means. You're going to be in his house. You're going to be in his family. You're going to eat at his table. Now, this is all being communicated in metaphors we can understand. Do we know what heaven's going to look like? Do we know what heaven's going to be like? No, not really. In heaven, after we die, we, we don't have bodies. 
We won't have bodies again until the resurrection. What we do know from what Jesus is saying here is that we will maintain our individuality in heaven, that we will be alive, that we will be with God, we will know God, we will commune with God. But here's another aspect of our hope. His presence will transform us to be like him. We draw near to God, we know him, he's going to transform us. I I can't help in looking at this text but not think of uh, God's presence in the burning bush. Remember when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush? You remember what God said to Moses on that day? It's one of the most funny passages in Exodus. Then the Lord said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. It's a weird statement from God. Take your sandals off because you're going to make the dirt dirty, Moses. God's presence had so purified the ground around the bush that Moses' sandals would sully the ground. This is what God's presence does when he draws near. God affects the people and things around him. One of two things happens. They are either purified and made holy like him, or they're eradicated. For those who believe in Jesus, when they meet God face to face, they are going to be transformed. We will be made holy as he is holy. This is our hope. But here's something to chew on. When you first believe in Jesus... What does the Holy Spirit do? Anybody? He comes to indwell us. He draws near to us. He takes up residence in us. The presence of God draws near to us in this life. And to what ends? Look at verse 12. Chapter 14, not 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father, and he'll say other, uh, other places in this conversation, what's he going to do when he gets there? He's going to send us the Spirit. To what result? We will do even greater things than Jesus did in this life. So the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, is God. Uh, The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not a part of God. He is God. And when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer, what does he do? He begins to purify us and to make us holy. It is a kind of a foreshadowing and and an early experience of heaven on earth. If he made dirt holy in Exodus 3, and if he makes us holy in this life, how much more will you be transformed by the presence of God in heaven. When we think about heaven, when we think about the future hope that's beyond all of our problems, it's easy to get distracted as to what the real prize is. The prize that we seek is not a mansion or a crown or a room. And why is it? If you all notice, like King James Version says, in my father's house are many mansions, and this, and in most modern translations it says uh, many rooms, Here's a very short reason why there's, you see that shift in translation. The, the Greek word translated uh, rooms uh, is not an easy word to translate. Most often it meant like a, a way place, like an inn along the road. It could mean sort of an apartment or a, a lodging within a larger place. But the ki- translators of King James didn't really know how to translate it, so they relied on the Latin 
translation of the Bible, which says mansions. And so it's, it's borrowed from the, the Latin translation of the Bible. But I'm convinced that a better translation is this notion of rooms. And again, he, Jesus is not teaching us about the architecture of heaven. Uh, that's not his point. The point is we're going to live with God. We're going to be in intimate communion with him. We're always going to be with him. We're going to be in the family together. There's that aspect as well. But all of that is secondary. The most important thing is that we are going to be with God. The, the, the prize is not even some kind of new knowledge, some new understanding, some new enlightenment, even heaven. And it's rest. That's not the prize. The prize that we receive is to know God himself. We will get to live with him. We'll get to know him. And being with him and knowing him will transform us in a radical way. This is going to be just for the kids. I'm sorry, if, if you're over the age of 24, this illustration is going to be lost on you, but that's okay, because most of my illustrations go over the little guy's heads. Minecraft. Wait for all the little eyes to turn toward me. The first time I played Minecraft, so if you don't know Minecraft, it is a, a video game that is theoretically infinite. Like, you can walk forever in one distance, and the world is self-generating. And so it's this kind of infinite thing. The first time I played Minecraft with my brothers, um, I, I'm sorry, this really is only for the kids. He had made a little train track for me to take me out to a space where I could build my little house. And I was, I was riding out on the train track. The, the little uh, piano music is playing, and the sun starts setting. This is going to sound nuts, kids. Pastor Jason started to cry watching this. There was something beautiful about it. And what it was about the game is that there was something infinite there. It was exciting to me. I could explore and explore and explore and find even more interesting and beautiful things in Minecraft. And something in my heart that really resonated. Do you know what it is? God is infinite. When we get to heaven, it can, it, it can be, you might think, oh, that's going to be boring. I'm going to run out of stuff to do. You're going to know an infinite God whose beauty and goodness and character are so big and so amazing that you can spend all eternity seeking to know him more and more, and you're never going to get to the bottom of him. He's like an ocean that is so deep you can never find its deepest treasures. He's like a, a jungle so large that you can never find every hidden thing, hidden treasure within it, right? So with God, we can continue to, to drink deeper and deeper of him, knowing him for all eternity, and never find the bottom. He is beauty upon beauty. He is that in which nothing greater can be imagined. He is the prize. He is the joy. He is the satisfying thing about eternal life. So, sorry, everybody over 24, for alienating you with my Minecraft thing, but I knew the kids would like that. In hopeless moments, you need to remember where you're headed. Remember your hope. And what is your hope? You will live in the presence of an infinite, beautiful, loving, amazing God. Now, this hope, this hope is an ancient hope that is deeply baked into human nature. The, the desire to be with God, to know God, to witness and enjoy transcendence, that desire with humankind, that has been with us from the time we could see the stars. This, this will connect more with the older crowd. Megan and I, on our honeymoon, we went to Niagara Falls. I wanted to get as close to those falls as I could, even though if I were to go under them, I would be obliterated. Why? Why am I gripped with passion to be near this thing and to see this thing? Because something in my 
self and in all of us wants to see power and transcendence and beauty and majesty. For thousands of years, humans have looked at the stars and come up with stories about great warriors and gods. Even the irreligious have invented religions. Why? Because God made us for this. We were made to live with transcendence, to know transcendence, and to be transformed and to shine with his character. Why else, when he made us, would he make us in his image and put us in the place where he lived, his temple garden, his dwelling place on earth? We were made for this. And when Jesus returns and we are resurrected from the dead, where are we going to live then? In the presence of God on the new heavens and new earth. Again, the point is not the geography. It's the presence of God. We were made to live with God, and we have always longed for it. Every desire you have to see beauty and transcendence and majesty, behind it is a desire for God. That's why he made promises like these to Israel in Exodus 29. He said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. The presence of God is our hope beyond all hope. The presence of God is the hope beyond all our problems. This is why the sons of Korah sang this in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. O Yahweh of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The psalmists end here where Jesus begins with faith, with trust. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. If you trust God, if you believe the message of Jesus, this is your future hope, the presence of God, that ancient hope that's deeply rooted in human nature. There are two more things to note about this hope. This hope is not ordinarily within the grasp of people like us, but Jesus makes this hope available through faith in his atoning death. As I said before, the presence of God either purifies or eradicates. We talked about the, holy, uh, the, the, the ground by the burning bush, how it was made holy. But if you read Leviticus chapter 10, we see Aaron's sons, the high priest, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, they went into God's presence and offered unauthorized fire on the table of incense. With what result? They were consumed with fire that burst forth from the presence of God. So we may long for God, we may long to behold transcendent beauty and power, but his presence, like Niagara Falls, is dangerous to sinners like us. Thus, Jesus says things like this. Again, verses 2 through 4. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. We can't just stroll into God's presence. Jesus has to prepare. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you? 
He's not saying he's picking out furniture and drapes for our room in the Father's mansion. No. Remember the context of the scene. Jesus is telling his disciples he's about to die and be gone. He is about to go and prepare a place for them. How is he preparing a place? By dying and being raised from the dead and then ascending to the Father. By dying, being raised, and ascending to the Father, he will prepare a place for us. He has made it safe for us to enter into the presence of God. If he doesn't do that preparatory work, we can't go to the Father, and certainly not safely. He prepared us for entry into the presence of God so that we would be safe in his presence. Thus, Jesus says this in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' statements in this text are so shockingly clear. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. He says, there is no faith in God that is not faith in Jesus. You cannot separate God the Father from God the Son. And if you want to know God, and you want to know the hope beyond all your problems, Jesus is the only way to have it. So let's unpack this way, truth, and life statement. First of all, Jesus is the way. There's no safe entry to the Father's presence except through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Why can't everybody go to heaven? Can't he just give us a pass? No. We are like Nadab and Abihu. We are unauthorized to enter the presence of God because of our sin. But the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has paved the way. He has prepared us for entry. Through him, we can be washed of our sins. We can be given his righteousness so that we can approach God without fear. Through the work of Jesus, sin and all of its effects are removed so that we can commune with God safely. But we must believe. Chris, I see enough people fanning themselves, and I'm hot too. Can you kick the air on for us, brother? But we must believe that Jesus is the truth. It is by believing the truth of Jesus' message that we receive this future hope. Believe in God, believe also in me, he said. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe God. And if you don't believe Jesus, there is no way to the Father for you. Jesus is truth incarnate, and you must believe in him. And the stakes could not be higher. If you don't believe Jesus, you do not have hope beyond your problems. In fact, you do not have hope beyond the biggest problem you'll ever face, which is death. Death is kind of the the big problem behind all the other ones. Death is the problem that will make you feel the most hopeless if you're not prepared for it. But if you believe the truth of Jesus' message, you think he wasn't a liar, you trust him, then you have hope even beyond death because Jesus is the life. Because Jesus lives forever, those who trust him will have a transformed life forever. Jesus really couldn't be more clear about how we can have hope. But keep in mind that all of our hope is found in the presence of God. God is the prize. God is the hope. He is the one for whom we're headed. So you may have some humongous problem in your life that overshadows everything else. So I ask you, can you trust Jesus? Do you believe him 
For those who trust Jesus, our problems will not be the end of us. We have hope ahead in hopeless moments when everything seems lost, when we feel trapped and out of control and overwhelmed. In those moments, remember where you're headed. You need to remember the good news of your destination, the presence of God. But then you need to remember how to get there. In hopeless moments, remember how to get where you're headed. The problem with hopelessness is that you feel out of control. You've got this massive problem in your life, and it feels like there's no way around it. But therein, in our inability and our weakness and our absolute impotence to overcome our problems, we find the beauty of Christian hope. Because what can you do to get into the Father's presence? Nothing. (laughs) Nada. Our works have separated us from God. The things we did got us out of of the, the, the kick, kicked out of the garden. So our works are not going to get us back into his presence. We are unable to fix this. But Christ has done everything. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And by trusting him, we gain access to the Father. He did it all. So when we're feeling hopeless, what do we need to do? The proper response to hopelessness is to bring your lack of control to Jesus recognizing that your future is in his hands. How will you get to the hope behind all your problems? What's the way there? Jesus has got to handle it for you. Trust him to take care of it. If you trust him, if you believe his message, he will get you where you're headed. And I don't want to explain hopelessness away. You know, if I, if I had someone, well, I, many of you have seen me in my own battles with depression in the past. Some of you have witnessed it. I've been a pastor here for 13 years, and that means some of you have seen me at my best and my worst emotionally. And when a person is feeling helpless, I rarely tell them, just bring it to Jesus. He'll take care of your problem. He's got your future in your hand. Even though it's true, that's usually not what I'm going to drop in their lap. To a person dealing with hopelessness, that probably feels like a platitude. There are some seasons of hopelessness where you do need to to sit down and really hash things out with a pastor, with a Christian friend, with a therapist. But all those conversations I've had with pastors and friends and therapists, they've actually all come back to this simple truth. I have no control over my life. None. Any sense of control I have is an absolute illusion. That's what I've come to learn. The question is, who is in control? hopelessness allows a problem to define reality as that that problem is the thing controlling my future rather than Christ being the one who has defined reality and who controls my future. So the question that Jesus asked his disciples and us in this text is this, can you trust me? Even with the biggest problem you can imagine, trusting him is the only way that we have hope ahead. But if you will trust him, If you will take your hopelessness, your problems, and your lack of control to Jesus, what's he going to do? He's going to give you the prize of the presence of God. But he doesn't give it to you just in heaven. He gives you that prize now. So look with me real quick, verses 6 through 10. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, How have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In Jesus, we have seen God the Father. And in receiving the Holy Spirit, we are united to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He in us, even in this life, we can experience the presence and closeness of God. In the giving of the Spirit, the hope of heaven was made present. Even now, we can know God. Even now, we live with God. Even now, we can be transformed by God. We can have intimacy with God, even when our problem is there in our face. We can be transformed by the presence of God, even when that problem is right there in our face. God is our hope beyond the problem. He is the way to that hope. And God, even now, is with us. Even now, we have God present with us to persevere us and to comfort us. The prize is God, and we have him even now. Chris, you want to go ahead and come up? I asked Chris to close this morning with a song uh, that we sing each week at Trail Life. One thing that I love about this song is it's realistic about the life we lead. Life is war. Life is not easy, and the problems in this life are often overwhelming. But as the hymn we're about to sing says, Run the straight race through God's good grace. Lift up your eyes and seek his face. Life with its way before us lies. Christ is the path, and Christ is the prize. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we get to heaven, it will be the presence of God that is our comfort. It is him, Jesus Christ, who is our comfort and joy forever and even now.